Web3 with me is a discussion style show where creators, marketers, entrepreneurs, and investors share how they are solving the core problem plaguing Web3, perception. The perception problem is preventing mass adoption. It is narrative, framing, and terminology, and it's inhibiting onboarding, engagement, and retention of users and customers. Web3 currently requires a level of technical understanding and responsibility due to a lack of protections that the masses do not currently desire. Web3 with me will provide insights for Web3 native companies and others considering a Web3 strategy to tackle that perception problem. My guest this week is Adam Sternback, General Counsel of Tessera. Adam has been on the front lines of the legal side of Web3 since 2021, but has been on a lifelong journey to make things better. After a brief career on the public side, he turned his sights to private practice in the startup world to make a bigger impact. He has one of the most comprehensive understandings of the current state of U.S. regulation and provides countless examples of how we as a community in Web3 can educate lawmakers and others to help provide legitimacy to the space. One more disclaimer, the opinions expressed by Adam Sternback in this episode are solely his own opinions and not that of Tessera and are not considered legal advice. LFG baby, let's start vibing. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, this has been a a long time coming. Uh, Ever since I heard you on Jacob Robinson's Law of Code podcast, which is the episode released immediately before yours, uh, we have been talking. Uh, We've had a few conversations and uh, love what you're doing over at Tessera, formerly Fractional.Art. So I'm excited to uh, get into it. Yeah, no, happy to to be here. Happy to uh, have this conversation. Cool, man. Well, the way I like to start these podcasts is to let my audience get to know you as a person, not necessarily have to be Web3, but what makes Adam, Adam, I call it your founding story. Feel free to start wherever you'd like. Sure. So um, I guess growing up, I was always interested in kind of finance, technology, entrepreneurship, things like that. Um, It was always a bit of kind of little rebellious streak, I guess you could say. So kind of like beat to my own drum, didn't do terribly, terribly well with authority at times. You know, if things like didn't make sense to me, I wasn't exactly the person who would just kind of go along because that's what I was told to do. Um, Hence, I'm a crypto lawyer now. (laughs) Um, But I think kind of a lot of those kind of combination of interests and just things related to identifying problems, considering solutions, evaluating those solutions, and then continuing to iterate and get a little bit better are kind of what led me into state government policymaking roles, what led me to startup and venture capital roles. So the bridge there, I guess, was primarily, I did a lot of, I worked in the New Jersey governor's office uh, from 2018 to 2019 and did a lot of economic development policy work and focused a lot um, in that role on kind of the startup innovation economy in New Jersey. Um, And really, like, how do you solve problems from both the public sector lens? And as I kind of dove deeper into that, it made me realize that the private sector is often the actor who is best positioned to solve problems. So if you're talking about like a minimum wage issue or an employment issue, like the government can design a bunch of policies to try and get people to pay people more. 
But ultimately, at the end of the day, and I think you saw this as a result of COVID, like the market supply and demand of employment, when Amazon or certain banks or certain retailers decided like, oh, we need to start paying $15 an hour because we need to attract people, that didn't solve that problem, but like was much better than anything the government was going to do to try and incentivize or cause people to pay a higher minimum wage. Um, and I use that as the example of what kind of ultimately drove me into startup and VC practice to try and work with the people who were creating jobs and innovating and kind of doing the types of things that I thought the public sector has an important role to play, but the private sector is ultimately at the end of the day, the one who will help kind of guide the direction of anything to, I think, a much greater degree than people appreciate when they're like, oh, government policy needs to step in and solve this. Like, I think private sector policy plays a much greater role. Um, and then from there, got pretty deep down kind of a Web3 and NFT rabbit hole, working with clients in that capacity, um, and then decided I was kind of at a point in my career where I was either going heads down to try and build a legal practice for the next 20, 30 years, or looking up to see what other opportunities might be there. And I always had a desire to go in-house and work more on the business side and kind of be more directly involved in those types of things. Um, and the opportunity arose at um, my current company, previously Fractional, now Tessera. And here we are um, building some fun, cool, interesting Web3 products for particularly the NFT space. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I've, I've been familiar with the product before I ever even heard you on a podcast. So I'm excited to dive into that side. But before we get there, I find it very interesting, uh, both for, for my own knowledge and just generally that you, you made the delineation between the effect that a uh, public policy and that government can have on innovation, on growing startups. Because I look at you know my city, I'm in Atlanta, and we're trying to make it a blockchain hub. Right. And we're trying to get buy in from the local municipalities so that they come and support this kind of stuff. But on its face, it's still up to the founders to go and found companies that are fundable, that grow, that provide value. Right. And I think you kind of ran into that when you were were in that policy side. Right. Yeah. So a lot of what the state of New Jersey was doing and what I was working on was trying to create effectively what amounts to a state-backed venture capital fund. It's it's If you want to get technical, it's probably more of like an LP vehicle to fund actual VCs and create kind of co-investment alongside them to somewhat simplify it into New Jersey-based companies. But really, they kind of chose the access to capital prong as what they thought they could plant a flag in the ground and really grow and use to attract people. And it's not quite that simple, but capital is certainly important. And I think the world also needs to be viewed in a bit of a pre-COVID, post-COVID world. And a lot of these efforts were pre-COVID, um, or at least the conception of them. The implementation is certainly going to be post-COVID. Um, but I think much of it depends on kind of the broader entrepreneurial and tech ecosystems that have built up. And I think you've seen a lot of the flywheel effect, obviously, in places like San Francisco and Boston to a very large degree, New York to a somewhat lesser degree. I think Salt Lake City and Utah as kind of the Silicon Slopes example is one that often goes overlooked, but to me has kind of been some of the most impressive cyclical nature of some successful companies that were founded there, some very successful exits, and then kind of them reinvesting in their community to kind of grow that pie. And I think that often becomes the challenge of how do you kind of create a connections and an ecosystem and the talent base to do that a little bit different with remote work now, but um, for a long period of time, those are the real challenges. And then government can certainly play an influential role. But again, like local governments, state governments, there's only 
so much they can do compared to kind of the broader amount of dollars that are needed for these and just general buy-in across the board. And I think those things become very, very difficult. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. So you, in in your capacity, were acting more as an LP, which, uh, no offense to New Jersey, but I imagine there were very large LPs that a lot of these VCs were working with. Um, so I, I, I imagine they were leading rounds or leading new funds for for these different VCs. Yeah, I mean, New Jersey's idea was less to be, I guess, a traditional LP where they would make kind of a passive investment in a VC fund, and then the VC fund would go and deploy that capital as they saw fit, which is much more the typical LP structure in a venture capital fund, limited partner uh, structure in a capacity. Um, And the state of New Jersey was really looking to basically incentivize GPs to invest in New Jersey-based companies um, by matching their investment. So basically providing a little bit of additional capital on really a deal-by-deal basis, not an overall fund. Um, So the nuances were a little bit different and unique. I think it was a very good program from kind of planting a flag and making a pretty big statement to the tune of, you know, a few hundred million dollars of potential commitment here. But capital is a commodity largely at the end of the day. And to the extent you also need kind of strategic um, or vision aligned or other kinds of support, New Jersey was providing capital and the other investors that New Jersey was looking to partner with were kind of what was going to have to sell that deal. And, oh, maybe you can get a little bit more money than you otherwise would have, which without going too far astray can be a good thing or bad thing to kind of overcapitalize an investment round in the first place. So it wasn't a perfect solution. But again, I think a lot of public policy gets done through kind of implementation and iteration. And I do give credit to the state for trying some new things. Yeah, they have they have different like uh, um, strings that they can pull, right? Uh, whether it's, you know, real estate, breaks on taxes, things like that, uh, that they can kind of couple with capital to make a bigger impact for these people. Um, but at the end of the day, the ecosystem, the thing that you keep referring to is really important yes. to be in cities where you're around a ton of venture capital, where you're around a ton of other startups, because one, it's access, but two, Talk about recruitment, right? Like if you're trying to be a a startup that's going to grow, which I assume every single person that has a startup is trying to grow, you're going to have to eventually add to your team. And if you don't have people that are experienced in tech, which are where most startups are, then it's, it's, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. I think all of those kinds of levers and ultimately capital alone will not get you very far and can often kind of become a hindrance without the ability to thoughtfully implement and build upon what the capital provides as a tool. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Well, taking it to the next step, I know that you went into the, the VC venture capital, the venture capital side of things, uh, startup world, uh, found yourself at, uh, at fractional at the time. Um, take me through that journey. Um, where, where were you introduced to web three? Um, how did you really fall down the rabbit hole? Yeah. So I had always been interested in crypto. I mean, dating back, probably like 2013-ish at this point, I guess, Um, when it was primarily like Bitcoin, XRP, Litecoin, you know, Ethereum wasn't a thing. Um, And I just found it to be pretty fascinating technology from kind of a trustless, permissionless, distributed ledger, like very core blockchain infrastructure. There were some interesting use cases, I thought, with correspondent banking. And again, at the time, Ripple was largely one of the few other than just like 
sending money peer to peer in the way that Bitcoin does and still operates. Ripple to me had some interesting implementation around how to send money in a cross border way between banking and financial institutions and without getting too deep into much of what's going on with with Ripple right now. Um, it at least kind of opened my eyes to the possibilities of what this technology could be and kind of what the purpose and value of any token, whether it's Bitcoin or XRP or Litecoin even at the time, um, was. Ironically, as kind of a very young lawyer at the time, it felt way too risky for me to kind of bet my career on the foundation of this technology coming out of school. Um, in hindsight, it probably would have been the best time, <laughs> but obviously, like, you only know what you know at the time, and it was certainly a risky field, still is to a large degree. Um, and I, I went much more of kind of a traditional financial services, like securities kind of regulatory uh, direction, and then always paid attention to it, always kind of like followed certain developments, um, and then kind of wasn't around as much in the 2718. I feel like people have different entry points, kind of like 2013-ish, 2014, 2017, 2018, and then kind of 2020, 2021. I wasn't around as much in the middle, but then kind of got brought back in as I saw the advent of like NBA Top Shot to a large degree. And like NFTs for me just clicked as kind of the way to own digital goods online, I would say. Um, and, you, you know, the use cases that could result from that and have really been incredibly, incredibly deep personally in the space since the very beginning of 2021. Um, art, PFPs, kind of just like following all of the day-to-day -day developments. And then, like I said at the beginning, kind of got to a point in my career where I felt I understood crypto generally, but NFTs in particular better than most kind of other attorneys I was talking to and working with in private practice when we would get crypto or NFT clients. And it kind of came to the point for me where, you know, hey, maybe my understanding of this coupled with some of my legal experience could actually um, give me a real opportunity to kind of go in-house and, and do this dedicated in a full-time capacity. And that's that's what ultimately led me to where I am. Uh, do you still collect NFTs? I do. You do? I what, do. How, yeah. what, how do you go about that? Are you doing it on one chain, multiple chains? What's, uh, what's the, what is your collecting style? Yeah, generally sticking primarily, I would say, to Ethereum to a large degree now. I mean, I don't think there has been as much. I, I think we're also kind of in a couple different eras of NFTs. I think obviously there was a lot of speculation and kind of just the innovation of decentralized IP that I think Yuga Labs and Board Ape Yacht Club made pretty interesting and prominent. Um, I think some of those use cases have obviously become a little bit less interesting now that it's become harder to continue to innovate on that somewhat narrow model. But I still view the underlying NFTs technology and I guess the idea that NFTs in and of themselves are kind of a technological innovation, but they are not a product and the need to help people understand that when we refer to the NFT industry, we really need to start doing a better job. And I certainly include myself in this and talking about what the NFT actually represents, whether it's a collectible or digital art, or I view a lot of the PFP projects as effectively membership tickets in an online social club that may seem a little bit silly, but I think at the end of the day, that's kind of what they amount to tickets and loyalty rewards and just a lot of the other things that I think we see lately. So 
my interest is certainly more on kind of what does the technology lead to from owning NFTs and interacting with NFTs, even though you don't know they're actually NFTs. And I think Reddit and Starbucks have been very good examples of that. Um, but I, I've found just kind of continuing to think about dynamic art and just how you can kind of connect the representation of what an NFT media is with kind of the real world changes or influences that are happening um, as pretty fascinating technology and some things that continue to kind of interest me and, and the creative applications of them. Yeah, it is fascinating. I, I actually followed a very similar path to you. Um, I discovered NFTs. Um, for me, it was really about the art. Um, I had been exploring my creative side. I was in house counsel at the time, very stressful job. Uh, and I was, I used, I started creating physical art and, you know, when I found NFTs, I was like, wow, this is cool. This is like opening up this door for all these people to be creatives. Um, this was the beginning of 2021. And then you follow, you know, the trajectory and there's a little mini bear between April, May before board apes really take off. And then to the moon yeah. for, for a while, yeah. um, which is interesting. But what it did is, is it forces you to take a step back and you're like, what does this technology actually do? Yeah. Right. Like what, what, what is it creating? And what it's creating is a new incentive alignment between the person who provides the NFT, creates the NFT and the person who collects the NFT. Um, and that application has now been expanded, right? As we pursue mainstream adoption, if you will, yep. you're starting to see the stuff like you're referring to with Starbucks and Reddit with these collectibles uh, or loyalty programs. Um, and now these loyalty programs are tradable. They are financialized. Um, some of them are within closed ecosystems like Nike, and some of them are more open ecosystems like Starbucks. Um, it's interesting to see these applications. And I know that at Tessera, you guys are in an, an interesting place for that, right? Like you have a lot of purview into the different applications for NFTs. So let's switch gears. Let's talk about Tessera. Uh, tell me about the journey from fractional to Tessera and uh, what you're doing today. Yeah, so we've basically built a platform for people to collectively own NFTs, digital collectibles online, and I guess form community around that. And then we recently also launched an addition digital art marketplace called Escher um, that allows for much greater discovery of both digital artists, but also the breadth of their collection. One of the challenges that I think we've seen within the digital art space is that if you did a drop on Nifty Gateway, for instance, and then another one on Foundation, and then another one through Manifold, and then one on your own contract. Um, there's and then no one on Tezos, and then right. one <laughs> um, or OpenSea, for instance. You know, there were there, there's no place that kind of aggregates an entire body of an artist's work um, across contracts. Across not we, we don't do chains, but um, across contracts, across platforms. Um, and gives you both the ability to kind of view it as though you were viewing their work in an, like a real life gallery and kind of seeing the evolution of how they started versus where they've gotten to, things like that. Um, and that is one of the things that we're continuing to kind of build out and focus on with Escher um, and, and digital art in particular. Well, so with Escher, I mean, first of all, hats off to you. That is one problem that has not been solved and it's the number one objection people usually have to nfts which is like what are you gonna do with it right you're gonna put a, a like you know token frame on your wall like 
that's still not satisfying. Maybe you mirror your screen on your TV. I know there's some Samsung smart TVs that allow you to display it, but the experience still frankly sucks. Um, I have very talented friends who have spent a lot of time collecting art, both digital and physical, spent hours putting together museums. And when I go into this museum on OnCyber, it's like, and you can't see me right now, but it's like, you can't even see the art, you can't enjoy it. And part of the value of NFTs is that you can experience this moving piece of art uh, with sound when it loads properly, yeah. <laughs> what should not be a capacity. And I'm, I'm guessing that when you guys were going to build out Escher and a viewing experience in this community around it, that you heard that loud and clear. Um, am I right? Yeah, I think the technology is obviously still pretty nascent. The display technology, people's understanding of what they can do, but also the dynam- dynamism, if that's a word, of what digital art can be and can represent and how it can evolve. I mean, those to me are often some of the more creative elements of owning digital art. So I think broadly as an industry, there is still a good amount that will need to happen. And I think just generally within blockchain, within kind of the user experience, wallets, a whole host of things. Um, and I think that'll all come. But I think there it's certainly a bit of a challenge to convince someone to kind of go through some of the steps that it's required to generally buy ETH, send it to a self-custodial wallet. I mean, you know, all of those kinds of things to then transact and transaction fees become a factor, especially when you're talking, you know, sub hundred dollar purchases and things like that, not necessarily some of the higher end kind of one of one or larger, uh, more prominent additions. So I think we still have a long way to go there. But at the same time, I think as people get more comfortable with this, as people kind of begin to understand that blockchain technology, and I think a lot of crypto technology, as we think about it now, is much more of an infrastructure layer than people recognize for a Web3 and next generation of the internet. I do hope that much of these problems will will become easier to manage and, and hopefully solved, although nothing's totally ever solved, I guess. No, I mean, that's that's why there's people still here, right? Yeah. There there are these problems that need to be built upon. I think problem, uh, one of the problems that you may focus on in your role is uh, security and making sure that people understand how to own a digital asset safely. Um, what, what, what kind of, I guess, um, best practices, education, that kind of stuff do you put into Tessera or Escher so that people are able to easily onboard or in the, in the opposite, are you just assuming that people understand that? I think we've focused on more of a web three audience for the time being, but I think it's something generally as an industry, um, that people spend a lot of time on and that any personal conversations that I have with someone understanding how to shut off DMS on discord and Twitter and social media platforms, unfortunately are kind of one of the first things that I discuss with them when they mention to me that they want to understand a little bit more, at least try and purchase an NFT or something like that. Because if you get something taken from you unwittingly, that can ruin your experience pretty quickly, obviously. Um, So I think the security challenges, you know, a lot of these things, like I think a lot of times the idea and the ethos in crypto of like self-custody or bust, um, I'm not so sure that we have that 100% right. I think a lot of times 
I view, I guess, the custodial nature of certain exchanges. I think for NFTs, it's a little bit harder because there are certainly a lot of things that get unlocked other than just kind of holding the NFT when you are able to display it or join a community or like derive some of the utility and benefit that often requires self-custodial ownership. But I just think the general concept of I want to own some crypto because I want to kind of begin learning about it and it's easier to learn about it if you own some and have kind of the experience of logging into even something like Coinbase, let alone kind of a Uniswap to purchase um, private key management and things like that is obviously a pretty significant and serious responsibility. And there's no customer service department you're calling to get your private keys back or to get custody of your assets if you misplace them or lose them or something like that. Um, so for a lot of people, I think that's kind of how I, again, speaking personally, approach it. Um, is unless and until you are willing to really devote the time and energy to understand how to safeguard this stuff, like move incredibly, incredibly, incredibly slowly. This stuff isn't going away. You don't need to to do something that is a little bit outside your education and comfort zone. One other quick aside, um, and then I'll, I'll pause, but some of the conversations I've actually had with policymakers in my role and specifically on a state level is about trying to craft digital financial literacy. And I feel like that is a really interesting concept that the industry could do more with to kind of help people understand both digital identity and how to uh, digital identity and how to transact generally online, but specifically as it pertains to crypto and safeguarding assets and kind of being smart about wallets and using wallets where you sign messages or interact with other types of smart contracts relative to just having kind of the hot wallet, cold wallet, vaulted wallet, like those type, general types of concepts um, is something that I think becomes a pretty interesting conversation and consideration about digital financial literacy as well. So you're talking about this with policymakers uh, at a at a federal level or at a local level? More at a state level, just kind of conceptually. I think one of the things, and a lot of my time lately is spent on general NFT and crypto policy work. Um, and in the absence, and we can certainly get into this more, but in the absence of kind of federal legislation and federal policymaking to provide some level of rules and clarity for the industry, States have stepped into the role where they are trying to introduce bills that are more or less with certain nuances, but for the sake of this conversation, very similar to the bit license um, in New York that was implemented several years ago, where it kind of creates a licensing regime um, a little bit more broad. And I think in ways that people don't understand than bit license, but the same kind of idea where states are basically stepping in to fill a gap in consumer protection that they view within the crypto industry in the absence of federal clarity and regulation. Yeah, that's to me is is top of mind, right? Uh, as I think a lot of people in this industry, which is like, there really is no consumer protection right now. It's, you know, very much like you are autonomous now, you must be beholden to whatever security risks and stuff. And frankly, that's going to keep this industry small, right? Which, you know, to some people is okay. But you know, it, the mission with this show is like, how do we take this mainstream? Because I, you see all the value, all the, the upside, all this creative unlock, all this incentive alignment, all this ability to connect with people and build communities around this, like that, that truly can't have its day unless there are hundreds of millions of people here, in my opinion. And they're not going to come if they have to worry about figuring out how to 
get a you know little USB stick, call it a, a cold wallet, right. and like store a seed phrase and like put it in a vault and then connect it and then connect it to your Discord. Like this, that's too complicated. Um, so a lot of that has to change. And I, I worry in some instance when you tell me you're talking to the states. I mean, I'm glad that somebody's picking up the slack, but I start to think I have like PTSD from privacy law where, you know, we wouldn't adopt a federal privacy law. And now we've got CCPA and now there's other states that are adopting these little laws that like really don't make much sense. And there's no unification of it. And compliance with them is extremely tough. Uh, it sounds like we're heading down that same path. Yeah, I think in the absence of some kind of holistic federal regulatory structure, states will fill that void. And I think you saw that a while ago with BitLicense. And I think certainly the fall of FTX uh, and the idea, I don't know how much of it's a true reality, but at least the idea that because of the BitLicense, FTX could not operate in New York. I mean, granted, they weren't really operating many places in the US. But <laughs> nonetheless, I think New York regulators to their credit perhaps kind of glommed on to like, oh, no New York residents could have been hurt by this because they weren't licensed and able to, let alone the fact that they weren't really in any US states putting aside FTX US and those types of things. But the type of risk that I guess FTX presented and the ultimate reality of how that situation played out have given, I think, a greater um, willingness for states to say, we need to do something to protect our consumers and our residents. And I do think while they will have and have kind of, I mean, state policymaking oftentimes is looking around at what other states, and the federal for that matter too, but states looking around at what other states have done and either borrowing those or iterating on that, but you're rarely reinventing the wheel. Um, and because BitLicense exists, and I think to most state financial regulators, BitLicense has been a pretty good structure and regime, notwithstanding what I think a lot of New York state residents would say, that largely becomes the model to then build off of. Um, and it doesn't appreciate a lot of the nuanced distinctions between crypto. Uh, I view crypto when people talk about crypto regulation as somewhat of a monolith. And I think it needs to be much more nuanced and kind of verticalized within centralized exchanges, within DeFi, within NFTs, within token issuances. Um, and I think when people talk about broadly regulating crypto, they don't appreciate those differences. They don't appreciate why different policies are needed for those different areas. And everything kind of gets thrown into the same bucket and creates a pretty unworkable structure. And I'm afraid, to your point, that's where we are headed absent some efforts to kind of educate and slow that down, which there certainly are. But, you know, you get some gung-ho people in some places who are hell-bent on legitimately what they think is in the best interest of their constituents. It poses a pretty significant challenge. So when, when you're having these conversations, are you pointing to other state regulation? Are you pointing to like MICA, the European regulation, anything in Canada, some of that stuff that's been working well? Yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, I think you're certainly trying to look at what other jurisdictions have done, just generally try and provide some education around some of these different verticals and why I think there's a very legitimate and good reason to regulate centralized exchanges as kind of custodial intermediaries in the way that a lot of other financial regulation and securities regulation applies to centralized intermediaries like brokers and exchanges and things like that. Um, 
I think it gets obviously more difficult when you talk about decentralized protocols that are largely non-custodial and connecting people in peer-to-peer transactions, even though it could appear to someone from an outside perspective that it's a very similar structure to a centralized exchange. Obviously, the underlying technology is pretty different. Um, So yeah, I think you're certainly looking at what other jurisdictions have done. You're certainly trying to educate people about some of these nuanced differences. Some people are more open to that conversation than others. From an NFT-specific lens, it's certainly trying to explain that a lot of NFTs are digital art or digital collectibles or gaming items or some type of other consumptive asset that in the real world has a parallel that wouldn't necessarily be regulated. But in a digital world, because of a sec- effectively like already secondary market with a known secondary market price at any given time, becomes much more like something that previously feels like it needs to be regulated. I'd say those are kind of some of the gaps and just trying to bridge some of those gaps in understanding and create at least what, what, what has started to come into play for NFTs again specifically is kind of, well, how do we differentiate between financial use case and between consumer use case and things like that? And that's a really good question. And I think certainly worthy of consideration and discussion But I also think we're at such a nascent stage for NFTs in particular, and frankly, a lot of crypto like DeFi even, um, where unless you're really willing to like study the issues like they have done in Europe and like they have done in other jurisdictions, the US approach and the state approach where they even have less resources than at the federal level becomes very haphazard and kind of forces stuff into different boxes that just really becomes pretty unworkable in practice. Um, And that, I think, is largely the challenge of crypto regulation and how how to... educate people, get people to come around. There have been a lot of strides made in the last couple of years, certainly, but we still have a long way to go. Yeah. What, I guess, what other forms of, is there, are there other forms of consumer protection uh, like the courts uh, that could take place without passing overburdensome regulation or in concert with passing regulation? Yeah. So I think a lot of general, Consumer protection laws focus on anti-fraud measures that apply broadly. You know, I don't think a lot of new technology in crypto needs a whole new set of laws. I mean, you might need like tweaks and applications so that people can better understand and have an understanding of who's behind something or kind of what they're buying and what they're getting as a result of it, because these are inherently unique products, if you will, and like don't really have an analog to the real world or to prior ways that people transacted online. So I certainly think there's a place for the development and iteration of this, but general fraud statutes, I mean, general manipulation statutes, there's still a lot of things that pretty much all states have truth and advertising, like you can't make false or misleading claims about what you're getting or what you're buying. You can't kind of like shill things online when you have an interest that isn't disclosed. I mean, a lot of these things generally do apply and I think provide some level of consumer protection. The enforcement side of it is obviously really challenging and I think takes limited resources in a way that states don't necessarily have to devote or the federal government has more, but not all. And this stuff just moves fast. It's global. You know, you can spin things up in far off jurisdictions and sell them to US customers. And there's really no good way to get your arms around that. So I'm sympathetic to the plight of regulators and law enforcement in that respect. 
But I also think that gets back to a lot of the digital education and digital financial literacy and just general responsibility that the industry has to both try and make people who are coming into this space aware of of what they're getting into and what the realities unfortunately can be, but also the fun and excitement that I think you and I have both experienced as part of these communities that kind of keep us here and keep us engaged. And then obviously what the possibilities can be, you know, three, five, 10 years down the road where this stuff is incredibly ubiquitous and you don't even know you're interacting with it 95% of the time, probably. It's just a new way of socializing at that point. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think a lot of, you know, to, to someone who's not as deep in these communities, but like some of the relationships that you have with, anonymous ape and frog and monkey pictures online. I mean, they're very like real personal relationships and friendships and stuff. And it's attracted, I think, a group of people who are obviously a little bit more tech forward, a little bit more comfortable with pushing the boundaries of technology and community and socialization and a lot of those types of things. And I find it to be you know, despite how crazy it can be and crypto Twitter in particular can be like, it's, (laughs) it's really a lot of very smart and thoughtful people who are just trying to use technology and kind of the intersection of that technology with distributed ledger technology and kind of the world computer, if you will. And then like financial elements, which I think are inherent in a lot of things that people want to do and the way that people kind of derive some personal levels of joys, whether it's betting on sports or buying meme coins or whatever kind of is going on at any given time. And I think that poses a challenge for regulators because there are obvious consumer protection applications that come from people who don't have the means to kind of participate in some of these ways, trying to participate or kind of buying the bill of goods that you buy one thing and, you know, you'll be an overnight millionaire. So it's all difficult, but there's obviously value here. And I think that's why we continue to come back to it, but also why a lot of these policy and regulatory conversations are incredibly important in making sure that we get that right so that the proper safeguards are in place while also kind of giving a place for a lot of this innovation to thrive and develop. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I when, when, when you talk and when I think about the space, about the, the power of these communities and kind of the like-mindedness of people that are participating in these communities, um, the, the word that always comes up is like kind of like a tribalism, yeah. Um, which I think is is a result of many different factors and causes. But, you know, ultimately it's because we're out here. We believe that this can help create a better impact on the world. Yeah. Um, and I just I just wonder, like, how, how do you view tribalism in this space? Do you view it uh, in a good lens or what parts of it are good? What parts of it are bad? Um, I know there's a like- lot of fun NFT community versus NFT community and kind of like ETH versus BTC or just like the general tribalism of anyone who kind of believes in in crypto and blockchain technology? You know, that's a good point. Um, maybe a little bit of everything. So it's Web Web 3, non-Web 3, right? Crypto right. versus NFTs is also right. one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, blockchain versus blockchain when they've got these armies getting after you on crypto Twitter. Yeah. Um, just generally, wherever you want to touch on that, I think it would be it, interesting. It's funny because yesterday... You know, every so often, like for things that I own, I'll do kind of a Twitter search to see, you know, what's the going sentiment and like opinions of people that I would never in a million years give credence to. Like they tweet something positive about something that I own. And I'm like, this is the smartest fucking person in the world. Like, how do I get more of this? 
you know, confirmation bias, like motivated reasoning, like all these psychological things just play so into a lot of human dynamics and the reality of human relationships. Um, and so I think it's inherent in anything that people are passionate about. I mean, sports, politics, where people live, the best city. I mean, it's just like dumb shit that people like to kind of fight and argue and like align themselves with, but it is tribal. And like, we, you know, come from kind of a ancestry of tribalism. So I think it's kind of to be expected to a degree. It's often entertaining if you're kind of deep in the space, but I think from an outsider perspective, the idea that, you know, crypto and blockchain will solve all the world's ills, which I very well may be guilty of too sometimes, or perhaps more than just sometimes. <laughs> um, you know, I can certainly understand. And I think you need to like put yourself in the shoes of people outside this space to understand why they do think that like crypto is a Ponzi scheme and entirely built on a house of cards that has obviously in their view collapsed. And then the other side of that is no, like the house of cards of a centralized exchange that was built on a house of cards collapsed. But like that wasn't crypto. That was whatever you want to call the allegations at FTX of kind of fraud and mismanagement and internal controls and, and all of that. Um, and then, you know, a variety of other centralized lending institutions and some of the things you saw with kind of the, the earn models at various companies. And just, again, a lot of it comes down to marketing, I think of like, you know, we can be an alternative bank where you'll get 10% instead of 3%. And Usually there's a reason for that. And unfortunately, people found out what that was. But I understand why the pushback comes to that. But at the same time, when you, I think, begin to look at the ability to build out peer-to-peer technologies that anyone can contribute to, anyone can learn, anyone can understand. And I think what's really unique is if like, I had an idea for how I wanted Facebook or Twitter to improve, it is much more difficult for me to get an audience and get that taken seriously than if I had like the next idea for how... Uniswap governance should go or like how someone should be given a grant to build like there are another part of this where I come from the public sector where a lot of it was like how do you build systems that economically empower people I do think crypto hasn't figured it out perfectly but the idea of like retroactive public goods funding that optimism and their foundation is doing like those kinds of concepts where you can take a relatively small grant it comes with generally the need to have technical skills or someone who will have technical skills. Like those are certainly barriers. And I think there's more we can do from an educational perspective to get people up to speed on that lens. But part of the reason I continue to love crypto and what the technology allows and kind of what the ability is, is because there really are very few bounds, I think, in the way that Web2 and other traditional web applications have built kind of these walled gardens where unless you know, if they want to choke off your access point to an API at any given time, they can, you know, we saw that with other platforms years ago, where like overnight, your entire business died, frankly, because like, you didn't have access to a Facebook API anymore, like they decided to push you out, things like that. And I, I just think we need to give and from an outsider perspective, like need to give a little bit more understanding to what building decentralized and permissionless applications on top of blockchains um, and decentralized ledger technology can allow for in terms of innovation and in terms of like people being able to kind of empower themselves 
when given the chance. And you aren't given that chance all that often. And I think blockchain still is unique in the fact in the way that it does allow That's for a, that. a lot of a lot to unpack there. That was a lot of really good points. I think, you know, starting at the beginning, there's nuances to tribalism, right? Um, everybody kind of has a thing that they want to be a part of. But the unique thing about the blockchain or the community that you are a part of is that you can have direct access, which is kind of what you were pointing to in the latter part of your comment, which you could never do before. You you can co you can call it co-creation, you can call it cooperative economies, um, whatever you want to call it. But you've got that ability to go in, make comments on the governance of these different organizations and influence in in a sense. And uh, the other thing that you said that was really interesting is. And you, you think about the education layer from a technical standpoint of how do I onboard, how do I use this ecosystem, right, of crypto, NFTs, what have you. But you don't think about that to get access to these pools of capital, which are unique to this space, you also have to have somewhat of a, of a, of a technical expertise, right, or have access to technical resources, which are in very low supply, right? Uh, I think the latest numbers I've seen is like 30,000 blockchain developers worldwide. Um, that is that is not many. It is less than 1% of total developers worldwide. So there's got to be some investment in the space, investment in the time to enable people in these public goods scenarios to do it, um, which is, is fascinating because I, to me personally, like the impact side of things is like where I see like one of the biggest value adds in the space. Yeah, and I think going on that point, what, what also I think is fundamentally very interesting to me, when you talk oftentimes about wealth and like how you, again, I get back to this idea of like economic empowerment, how you allow people to kind of like elevate their personal financial situation generally, like the idea of ownership and equity in some system, whether it's a home or a car or something like that plays a pretty foundational element. And getting back to my kind of distinction between web two and web three, like even if you had a great idea for Facebook and even if they implemented it, like you get no benefit from that. Like, yeah, you can own a few shares of stock, but like even that is pretty negligible in all likelihood. Um, but if you develop something and you can own protocol governance tokens and you can get rewarded in protocol governance tokens for like people using kind of a system or a, a smart contract or a protocol that you develop and you contribute to that begins to take off, I just think it reduces a lot of barriers to entry for people who like maybe don't have the complete opportunity and ability to start a company, but like they do have kind of this narrow niche of like understanding of some kind of system or some kind of technology where they can begin to contribute and they can really derive a lot of the financial benefit of that. And again, like there will always be the consumer protection side. There will always be like, don't oversell what it actually is. But I do think one of the things that has always fascinated me about you know, where do I think the best opportunities for economic empowerment lie? Blockchain, I do think, plays a pretty significant role in that, as opposed to just kind of the traditional economic systems that we have created. Um, and I think DAOs play a role in that. And I think there's a lot of education that needs to happen. But blockchain, to me, at least still holds a lot of promise in that respect. Um, and I think more and more as we see retroactive public goods funding, the idea that like the value that you cr create can be kind of recycled where like we have public utilities like water and sewer systems and electricity and things like that. And the idea that you can kind of create similar types of systems with protocols in particular and kind of 
the rails and infrastructure that people use to transact online become really, really, really fascinating. Yeah, I just uh, when when you start to talk about that, I start to go back to Balaji's network state, um, where you're yeah. just you you've kind of built the foundation, and you can actually program a lot of those basic public goods into uh, a smart contract, right? That enables that community yeah. to go out and then do whatever it is that they have decided to contribute to that community. Um, one, of the, one of the foundational, I think, beliefs and on which I've spent my time here, right? Is, is the ability to do that. I think we still got a long way to go. Uh, yeah. Totally. I think one of the other things on that is a lot of times regulators and policymakers will say like, you know, show me the use cases, show me like why this technology matters. And I think it's a bit of a chicken and the egg problem to some degree, because it's very hard to get use cases without regulatory clarity. And if every token that you put effort into to kind of derive some type of benefit that could be shared with like a distributed community of people who are contributors begins to look like a security and potentially puts you in regulatory jeopardy, it's very difficult to get the kind of use cases that I just described where people do want to contribute and build and iterate and derive some value from, you know, having a small protocol fee that's layered on to your transacting, whether it's something like that. So I think oftentimes it's an unfair, perhaps, question about, you know, show us the use cases, because I think it's it's not possible in the U.S. to do much of this right now without a level of regulatory clarity or at least an understanding that, like, you won't get taken to task or, like, find or come under the gun for building these types of things right now. And I think that's a pretty unfortunate reality that we find ourselves in and is also both holding back kind of what the potential of this technology is, at least in the US. I think we'll slowly start to see other jurisdictions take the lead there. Um, but that's, I think, got to be like a point that gets layered on to what I just said, because it's not as simple as like, oh, no one's building or no one has ideas or no one wants to do this in the way that I just described. It's not clear yeah, how to they do just that. can't. <laughs> and, and sleep at night, Correct. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this has yeah. been great. We're uh, we're nearing the top of the hour. Uh, very interesting discussion. I do have my two traditional closing questions that I ask every guest. Um, the, the first one sure. is, how do you describe Web3? Um, so I describe Web3 as the next generation of the internet that allows people to both own, govern, and participate in the protocols and applications online that they care Makes about. Sense. And the final one's forward looking. Um, where do you see yourself in the space in the next six to 12 months? And then where do you see yourself in the space in the next five to 10 years? And feel free to have fun with five to 10 years. I'm not looking for a big prediction, but something, something cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ready player one. <laughs> I think six. Yeah, exactly. I think six to 12 months. Um, Largely in the same role that I'm in today, just trying to continue to build products and advise and kind of educate about the best way to do so uh, in a legal, from a legal and regulatory lens, particularly within kind of the NFT space within within the broader ecosystem. Um, hopefully making some progress on some of these policy conversations and putting together some industry groups to help begin educating people about NFT technology, the different products that can get built on top of NFTs. I mean, every single day you see gaming and tickets, you know, various things that I think will only get more in focus, you know, different Adidas and Nike and their clothing drops lately that have been largely gated by NFTs, like all of these types of things that I think begin to connect 
NFTs to kind of a mainstream user in a much easier way than DeFi or something. Those are kind of areas that I think in the next six to 12 months, the industry and hopefully myself can play a small role um, in helping people to kind of understand that and think about NFTs a little bit differently than the rest of, of the crypto space at large. Um, five to 10 years was the next one. Oh, man. <laughs> You know, I would say continuing to try and like push innovative use cases and how people interact with NFT technology and things of that nature, whether it's art, I continue to think tickets are going to be a really fascinating use case of NFT technology. Um, hopefully some continued kind of policy engagement, I would say. I don't know. It's, it's, I, 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 <laughs> it's hard to go month by month in this space, let alone five, <laughs> 10 years. But I think hopefully continuing to to make sure that we push the bounds of what this technology can do in kind of a responsible way, but also creating some systems that blockchain tech is uniquely positioned to do for uh, for the next generation of the internet and the way that people transact online. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think, you know, you, you broadly answered the question in your previous comment before my closing questions and that you went into what could be possible if we put regulation in place, what could be possible on the blockchain if people had some sort of sound understanding of what was a security, what wasn't a security, and it wasn't just arbitrary, which is what it seems like right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I, you know, and I think a lot of the technology kind of needs to catch up and it will, and it'll make those things easier. And I think other experiments, I guess, quote unquote, that you're going to see in Europe and in Asia will hopefully at some point give the U.S., some level of conviction that like this stuff isn't going away. So it can either happen with you or without you. But the idea that you're just going to close your eyes and wish it be gone, or, you know, we're all going to unplug the blockchain <laughs> and this stuff isn't going to work anymore. Like, it's just, we need to get past that because it's not realistic. Um, so yeah, I, you know, it's, it just, I don't know. It continues to be endlessly fascinating to me on, on a variety of different levels, which is why I continue enjoying Working this well, this has been awesome. I know that the reason that you and I connected was because you offered to connect with anybody. I don't know if that DM is still open for anybody. I'm happy to cut this part of the show too, but um, I don't know if you're still still opening that up for people that are interested. Yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm more than happy to connect. If I mean, look, it was great meeting you that way. I think people often don't take as much advantage of how open people are often in this space that protocol founders have their DMs open or the largest kind of thought leaders in this space have their DMs open and maybe you'll get a response. Maybe you won't. You need to be thoughtful with how you craft a message or exactly what point. Maybe it's, you know, you'd be patient and kind of like make sure that when you're ready to take your shot, it's the shot you want to take. Um, I'm not saying that for me. People can reach out to me with whatever. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll filter it myself and, you know, maybe I'll regret that. But for the time being, um, but I think that's one of the really fascinating elements of people who work in this space are generally, in my experience, a lot more open and a lot more willing to engage and communicate and share knowledge and ideas and experience with people who are genuinely showing an interest in learning more about wanting to figure out how to participate, about trying to level up various skills, knowledge, things like that. So yeah, That's by awesome. all means. Yeah, it's a, it's a good way to close. And it's true. I mean, I, you, you can reach out to 
like people with millions of followers. And if you craft the yeah. right type of message, they, they might respond, or at least they may send somebody your right. way. Um, and and it, is, it is unique, uh, certainly to tech writ large, yeah. but especially in this space. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think people can see pretty quickly what the amount of inbound they get, whether things are self-serving or whether things are genuine and stuff like that. And just a note um, to anybody that reaches out to Adam, he really likes insurance sales. So if you ever really want to get his attention, <laughs> make sure you pitch your yeah. best insurance idea. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. All right, man. Well, this has been fun, dude. I appreciate it. All right. Yep. Take care. Thanks a lot. 